You can open to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We started a new series of sermons last week entitled uh, The Mirror of Marriage in which we're taking a look at uh, this picture that God is wanting to paint to the world of His love and grace in Christ toward His church through the covenant union of marriage. So we continue this week. Last week we saw the essence of marriage. This week we want to take a look at the mission of marriage. What is God up to in this mission of marriage? In 2002, listen, there was a study conducted by two researchers for the National Marriage Project. It was entitled, Why Men Won't Commit. Some of you are like, can I get an amen? The premise of that study, it grew out of the common accusation by women that men are commitment phobic and that they're afraid of marriage. Now listen, for you men be like, they are wrong, they are right, because the study, at least in the response to this study, proved and showed that men did live up to that common perception that they were commitment phobic. And what was striking about the study is the reasons that the men listed, particularly one reason they listed why many of the men were unwilling to commit to a wife. And it was this reason, because they had yet to find what they deemed to be their perfect soulmate. They had yet to find their perfect soulmate, by which they defined as someone who was very, if not completely, compatible with them. Then they went on to further define the terms of compatibility in the relationship. And listen, they defined it in two key ways. First of all, they defined compatibility in terms of physical attractiveness and sexual chemistry. Like, surprise, surprise, men who are wired visually, right, they would find physical attractiveness and sexual chemistry to be a part of the bond that would draw them together with someone else to bind their life to them and make them compatible. But second of all, Second of all, it was defined, compatibility was defined in terms of a willingness for someone to take them just as they are and not change them. Now listen, maybe this is a shocker to some of you, probably not to most of you, but listen, that was the number one, even above sexual chemistry and physical attractiveness, that was the number one way in which men define compatibility. Someone willing to take them as they were and not change them. In other words, men were looking for a, wimp, a woman who would fit into their life. Right? They would just kind of seamlessly slide into their life. And if they were truly compatible with them, these men responded they would, ha- they would not have to change. In other words, these men assumed that if they married the right person, it would require no course corrections for them. It would require no adjustments on their account. right? And it would require no change if they could just find the right person. Now listen, church. Listen. Let me just say this. You, you will never find the right person if the right person is defined in those terms. You will never find the right person. Let me give you two reasons why. We talked about one of them a little bit last week. Let me, give you, let me visit it again. First of all, marriage being the thing that it is inevitably will change a person over the course of time. Stanley Hauerwas, who was a, a, a professor, a long-time professor of theological ethics at Duke University, at the Divinity School there. Listen to what he said about marriage. He says, Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption, he says, is that there's someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This assumption, he says, overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we we are marrying. We just think we do. And even if we do marry the right person, he says, just give it a little while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing it is means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. He says the primary problem is this, learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married over the course of your life. Now listen, church, you can't press his words too far, right? You can't press them too far because there are some people who are absolutely not compatible for you to marry, 
All right, there are some people that, with which you are just not going to, to it, it, it's just not going to work. And so it's not going to work for you, it's not going to work for them, and you realize that and you move on. Right? There's some people who you will not be compatible with. But there's also some people who are just not yet marriage material. I didn't say they would never be, but they're not yet, right? If they're incarcerated, they're not yet marriage material, right? If they're involved in legal, illegal activity, probably not yet marriage material, right? If they're a young man who plays video games 17 hours a day and doesn't get paid six figures to do it professionally, probably not yet marriage material, Right? A young woman who is laser focused on her career so that nothing is going to get in the way. No relationship, no family, no person, no man. They may be one day marriage material, but probably not yet. Right? There may be some people with whom you're just not compatible and some people who are not yet ready to engage and take that step. So you can't press these words too far. And yet, for those of you in this room who've been married for a while, you know exactly what he's saying exactly what he's saying we never marry the right person if our definition of the right person is someone who is completely compatible with us and requires no corrections no adjustments and no change that person church does not exist they do not exist and just when you begin to think they do they change requiring you to change you to adjust and you to correct let me give you another reason this is the, the myth of a soulmate is not reality. It's the biblical doctrine of sin. The biblical doctrine of sin. You see, listen, if you're single in the room and you aspire to marriage one day, I just want to go ahead and burst your bubble. You will not marry Jesus. Okay? And those of you who have been married for any time at all are painfully aware of the fact that you did not marry Jesus. <laughs> right? They have sinned against you. You have sinned against them. That's reality. That's reality in life. You are married to another human being who was broken by the fall and shattered by sin. And listen, whenever you came into that relationship, you know what you both brought with you? You both brought with you sin and selfishness and put it on the table and said, let's try and make this thing work. That's what you brought to the table. That's one of the reasons marriage requires so much work and so much discipline and so much labor. Listen, when I do premarital counseling with couples, when we, when we talk about the kind of work that marriage is going to require, the kind of labor, the kind of effort that you're going to have to put in, they're always like, we know we've heard you're going to have to work in marriage. We know you're going to have to come together and work through things and resolve stuff. We know. I'm like, mm-hmm. Then you see him six months later, or you see him 12 months later, or you see him 18 months later, like, why didn't anybody tell us it was going to be this much work? Right? Because marriage is hard, partly because of the biblical doctrine of sin. And what you're bringing to the table, church, as a husband, what you're bringing to the table as a wife is sin and selfishness that has to be unpacked and it has to be worked through through labor and discipline. Listen, having a good marriage requires as much discipline and as much work as becoming a professional athlete, as becoming a renowned artist, or a published author, right? You might be thinking, well, all those people had some kind of raw talent, and they did, right? A, a professional baseball player had raw talent that was honed in the batting cages and in hours and hours of fielding practice. They threw that slider over and over and over and over and over again until it had the exact right break at the exact right time discipline it requires discipline to become a renowned artist discipline to become a published author even though there's raw talent there it has to be cultivated and shaped and listen a good marriage requires just as much work as any of those professions because of the biblical doctrine of sin but all of this listen is a big problem in our culture and here's why because in our evolved, refined American culture, the fulfillment of your personal desires and happiness, right, the happiness of the individual self, have risen at the flagpole of our cultural values to fly supremely over all the others. Right? And this is a stark departure from traditional cultures, from more traditional values, in which it wasn't about the individual self, it wasn't about my own personal happiness, it was about the fabric of society and stability, oftentimes through families and so when we look for the existence of this perfect soulmate 
Right? When we look for this right person who will fit into my life, they'll be compatible with me, what we're looking for is this. We're looking for like a memory card that you can just like, take the back of your, your desktop computer off and you can just change out the memory sticks, right? You can put in, you can go from 14 gigs of processing power to 16 gigs of processing power. Everything works faster, it moves more efficiently, and it works, it's stronger. That's not how marriage works. Because marriage was never intended to be about your personal fulfillment only. Nor was it ever intended to be only about the fabric of society and stability within cultures. It was never intended for that. See, our modern culture gets it wrong when it says marriage is about your personal happiness. Traditional cultures also get it wrong whenever they said marriage was about the fabric and stability of society. Because in that culture, the highest value was the society. In our culture, the highest value is self. But in the Bible, the highest and most supreme value is God. It is God. It's not the self and it's not society. It is God. That's the highest, the supreme value in the scriptures. And as in the Bible's vision for life, God is the highest and most supreme value Then everything else in our lives should be causing us to move toward rejoicing in Him. Everything else should be moving us toward Him and not away from Him. Everything else should be shaping us to be like Him, including marriage. Including your relationship with your spouse. See, last week we said marriage is a mirror in that it reflects Right? It reflects the beauty and glory and mystery of this relationship between Jesus and his people. That he is in covenant, bound himself to them, and they in covenant have bound themselves to him. Right? That marriage is a reflection of the most beautiful love on the face of the earth. The most beautiful, captivating portrait that you will ever see. It reflects that back out to the world, but marriage is also a mirror in another capacity as well. Because you know what it reflects back to you as you look into your spouse? It reflects back to you your own flaws and your own failures. It reflects back to you your own selfishness and your own sin. You see, before I got married, as a naive 23-year-old punk, here's what I believed. I believed that I was relatively selfless. I believed that I was relatively humble and that I thought of others more than I thought of myself. I believe that I was relatively, had made relative progress in putting the needs of those who were around me above my own, right? I believe that I, would, I, I cared for my spouse, for my wife, more than I cared for myself. And then I got married, and I realized I was wrong about all of that. Because all of a sudden, staring me in the face was my selfishness. Staring me in the face was my sin. Staring me in the face were my flaw, character flaws and my failures. Staring me in the face, looking back at me through that reflection that I saw in her were my own shortcomings. Because marriage works as a mirror in that capacity as well. And listen, that is a gift of God's grace to you, church. Some of you want to mm, you run from that. Right, when you see that coming back at you and your spouse, you see your sin and selfishness coming back at you, you want to run from that. But listen, that is God's grace to you because apart from then, you may have never seen it in any other way. And listen, until you see it, you can do nothing about it. Nothing about it. Right? See, the mission of marriage, the mission of marriage is not to fulfill societal obligations. The mission of marriage is also not to secure your individual happiness. The mission of marriage is to cultivate your communal holiness. Let me say that again. The mission of marriage is to cultivate your communal holiness. And that brings us to our text this morning. Some of you are like, finally. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 and 2. And then we'll read verses 25 to 30. It'll be on the screen for you behind me if you don't have a copy in front of you so you can follow along. Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blame, blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Listen, church, if marriage is going to work in your life the way that God has designed it to, you must shift your thinking away from the assumption that your current spouse, or if you're single and aspire to marriage, that your future spouse, seeing them as someone who is partnering with you for your personal satisfaction. You don't see them as someone who is partnering with you to build a business, to create and sustain an image that is consumable on social media. Right? We're always walking up the steps to the Dallas Museum of Art, holding hands and laughing, taking selfies, and everything's good and great and glorious and grand because all anyone sees of you is that public consumable image that you project. They don't see what happened when the, you got in the car afterwards. Right, the conversation on the way home, you don't see any of that stuff on social media. Somebody's helping you keep and project an image. Right, that's not what they're for, for your personal satisfaction, to build your reputation. They're not there to grow a portfolio for you, to fulfill your emotional or sexual desires. So let me say it as strongly as I know how. It probably could be said stronger. This is as strong as I know how to say it. That marriage is not about your personal satisfaction because God has much bigger plans than that. Marriage is about your mutual sanctification, church. That's what marriage is about. God's aim in marriage is, is indeed, listen, let me unpack this for you, is indeed to make you happy by making you holy. To make you happy by making you holy. His aim is not to make you happy by just leaving you as you are. But by changing you into who he envisions you being in all of your fullness. That is his aim. C.S. Lewis, I love the way he says it in his book, The Problem of Pain. Some like, that's a very appropriate book title for marriage. But in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says it this way. He says, He gives the happiness that there is, not the happiness that is not. To be God, to be like God, and to share His goodness, in, or to be miserable, those are the only three alternatives. If we will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe can ever grow, then we must starve eternally. Some of you are like, what in the world is he talking about? Let me break it down for you. What Lewis is saying is this. He's saying God cannot give you a happiness that does not exist. He can only give you a happiness that does exist. And the only happiness that does exist, Lewis says, is this. You have three alternatives to pursuing happiness. You can be God who is ever, only, always joyful and full of happiness. Or you can be miserable because you've rebelled and rejected His rule in your life. Or you can be like God in His, in, in, in his goodness, in His character, in all those things that make God who He is that He shares with His creatures. You can be like Him. He says, those are your three alternatives. To be God who is only always forever happy, to be miserable because you've rejected Him, or to be like Him. Those are your three options. God cannot give you a happiness that doesn't exist, only one that does. And the only one that exists in this world, the only way, the only path to full and lasting joy is to be like Him. Is to share in His character. And He says, if you refuse to eat that food, 
He says, you will, that's the only food that provides happiness in this universe or any other universe. He says, if you refuse that food, you will starve eternally. That's what he's saying. That ultimately, God's aim in your life, through all the facets of your life, is to make you a clearer imitation of himself as you come to a fuller understanding of your identity as his beloved child. Let me give you a little support for this by running down Ephesians with you really quick. Chapter 1, Paul starts the letter by saying, those who are in Christ today, they were predestined to be heirs with Jesus through the eternal decree of adoption issued by God the Father before the foundations of the world and now sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. And then he prays for the church Chapter 2, Paul goes on in Ephesians to say that although we were born estranged from God on account of sin, we are saved by grace, through faith, and in Christ, and that we are grafted into the people of God, the church, composed of both Jews and Gentiles, because God has shattered the wall of division that existed between those two ethnicities, bringing them together under His headship and lordship. Then in chapter 3, Paul says there's a mis- this mystery of the Jews and Gentiles coming together in one body. The mystery of the gospel is now being proclaimed that was hidden for ages in the past. And then he prays that the church in Ephesus would know what it is to live in light of the abounding love that God has for them as his people. In chapter 4, Paul says the outflow of knowing this abounding and abiding love of God in their lives. This, the outflow of that great love God has for Would them them be living lives that are worthy of the calling that God has placed on them. And they would walk in this new kind of life. They would put away their former ways of living. And they would embrace new ways of living in light of who they are and who God is. And then it gets us to chapter 5. And at the beginning of chapter 5 where we read, Verse 1, an inference Paul draws from everything he said already in the book. And he says, therefore... Therefore, on account of all this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And the Bible calls this process, and theologians over the course of time and history have called this process sanctification, of becoming a clear imitation of God as you rest more securely and firmly in your identity as His beloved child. That's what got us to this point in Ephesians chapter 5. Now some of you are looking at me a little squirrely right now because you're like, I thought I came to a message on marriage, not on being an imitator of God, not on the dynamics and process of sanctification. I thought we were talking about marriage. What do these two things have to do with each other? Everything. Everything. Listen, compare what Paul says in verses 1 and 2 to what he says in verses 25 to 28. In verse 1, there's a command to imitate God. And in verse 26, we are told that in his death, Jesus was aiming to sanctify the church, wash her, present her without spot or wrinkle, so that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, to make her an imitator of God in her character and her conduct. That's what Jesus was aiming for in his death when he gave himself up for her. Right? To become this imitator of, that we might become imitators of God. In verse 2, we're told to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And in verse 25, husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul starts Ephesians 5 with this command to embrace our new identity as beloved children by imitating him. And he ends Ephesians 5 by, uh, with a discussion of marriage. Now listen, the authors of Scripture don't go, hey, let's do a little potluck here. I'll just grab this topic from over here and this topic from over here and we'll just kind of throw them together and see what comes out. No, there is order to the way the Bible is written. There's connections between these two things at the beginning of Ephesians 5 and at the end. And here's what it is. The latter marriage serves the former, your sanctification. The latter serves the former. And but this, uh, I don't have enough time. The, this, this biblical truth, listen, it is drowning under the waters of the prevailing 
tide that is rising within our culture. Listen, in 2010, there was a New York Times columnist named Tara Parker Pope, and she wrote an article entitled, this is, this is good, this will preach, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. The happy marriage is the me marriage. In that article, she describes what amounts to a tectonic shift in the views of marriage in modern America. Listen to what she says. The notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. You think? After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? And she says, not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership and partners who can make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain valued goals. She says, in our modern conception of marriage and marital relationships, we want a spouse, as we said before, compatible with us who will not argue when there's no arguments right there's no conflict in the relationship because there's compatibility but what you don't realize church listen is that conflict in your marriage if you're married if you're not married yet there will be conflict if you are married now you know there's conflict and conflict in your marriage listen is an opportunity to move toward oneness do you know that that's what it's an opportunity for Those of you who erupt in the midst of conflict, you know what you're doing? You're severing oneness. Those of you who withdraw from the conflict because you don't want to lean into that, you're severing the oneness. There is still something simmering under the surface whether or not you address it. And it is inhibiting the oneness in your relationship. I got to go on. Look, we, we want somebody who, there's no conflict, they'll provide for our financial and sexual desires. In other words, what she's saying is this, marriage is no longer about us, but now it's about me. It's about me getting what I want, about me being fulfilled, about me being satisfied, about me having all the things that I've dreamed of in my life. We define, ha- listen, it's not, it's never about me entering into a relationship with someone. Mm. Yeah. See, it used to be marriage was about when you enter into a relationship as a husband and wife and you covenant with someone. It used to be that what that meant at times was that some of your dreams died for the welfare of the relationship. What it means today on the basis of what she says in modern American culture is this, is that the relationships die so my dreams can live. So marriage being about your mutual sanctification is a big problem for the way modern Americans view marriage. But at the end of the day, as we said before, yeah, last week as I prayed my prayer earlier, what we don't want to do in the course of our time together is take the bar that the Bible sets and lower it down to the bar of our personal experience. What my aim is, is that we would take the bar of our personal experience and try and raise it progressively to the bar that the Bible sets. And so in the time that we have left this morning, I, I, I want to I speak to the husbands and I want to speak to the wives about what do we do with this, with this idea of marriage being about your mutual sanctification. And I'm going to start with the husbands because the Bible usually does and tells them what to do First. So husbands, hear me. If you're gonna if you if you're gonna view marriage as being about your mutual sanctification, then you gotta aim for Christ honoring change in your wife. You gotta aim for Christ honoring change in her. I want to read that text in Ephesians five again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now listen, this is not a message about headship and submission. It's not a message about leadership and respect. That one's coming in a few weeks. We'll talk about the roles in a few weeks. Right? And there'll be three people here. And in a few weeks, we'll look at what that does mean and what that doesn't mean in the context of marriage, right? But that's not this message. But at the heart of what Paul says here, I believe, is the heart of the mission of marriage biblically. And listen, ladies, some of you are probably asking this question right now. What what about the small-minded, immature, self-centered, controlling, egotistical man who wants to just dictate every area of my life. We're going to deal with him in a few weeks. Okay? Not this morning, but we're going to deal with him in a few weeks. Right? So just come back for that. It'll be fun. But, but this, this morning, let's assume. Let's assume the husband's a believer. Let's assume that he's a, a, wanting to be a godly man and aspires to loving and leading his family the way the Bible has called him to, that he's mature, compassionate, and sensible then husbands, you should aim for Christ-honoring change in your wife. You should aim for it. But you should aim for it with some governors that are set in place. And let me give you some of those. I'm going to give them to you in the form of questions. First of all, is the change that you're aiming for, is it something that needs to be covered or is it something that needs to be confronted? Because ha- both are needed in the context of moving toward mutual sanctification. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we read these words, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. There are some things in the life of your wife that need to be covered with forbearance. There are some things in the life of your wife that need to be covered with grace. You need to move towards her in forgiveness. You need to move towards her in bearing with. Right? The Bible calls us to bear with other believers. And Who should you bear with more than the person who is most closely associated to you and connected to you that you're bound in covenant union with? And your wife. And it's so important that we start here, men, because your foundation with your wife needs to be based upon this understanding of covenant love, of grace, of forgiveness. That you are not coming to her saying, Baby, I feel like there's some change that needs to take place. If you will change, then I will love you. Then I will extend grace to you. Then I will forgive you. Because that is so counter to the gospel. Because the gospel, in the gospel, Jesus lays his life down for his bride with grace, extending forgiveness, and then says, Come, there's some changes that we need to make. So, is it something that needs to be covered in grace and forbearance? Or is it something like Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, when he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them? Right? Is there something that needs to be exposed and confronted in her life? Like, how do you know the difference? Let me, let me give you some, a question to consider. First, you need to consider whether or not what you're aiming to change is an idiosyncrasy of their personality that gets on your nerves. Or is it the idiocy of sin that will destroy your life? Do you realize there's a difference? Right? Listen. There's no morally unacceptable way to unload the dishwasher or fold clothes, right? The inflection in their voice or their accent or the way that they laugh, right? Or the way that they do things versus the way that you would do things, right? Oftentimes those boil down to very morally neutral things, right? Are you covering those things in grace and forbearance because there is an idiosyncrasy about their personality versus do I need to step in and confront whenever I see the idiocy of sin beginning to work itself out in their life, in their attitudes, in their actions, in their character, in their conduct? Do I see things that cause concern for me? The way that they treat other people the way that they interact with them, the way that they judge other people on the basis of the way they dress or the way they talk or the kind of socioeconomic class that they come from. Do they judge other people on the basis of the color of their skin or the side of the tracks they grew up on? Do they judge other people 
right, on the basis of their sense of fashion, right? Do they wear floppy hats and skinny jeans, or do they, right, how do they dress, right? If you begin to see that, it begins to manifest itself in gossip. Did you see what she wore? Did you, mm, right? You get to start leaning into those and confronting that with grace and kindness, right? Because greed and gossip need to be confronted. Selfishness and slander need to be confronted. Apathy and purity, those things need to be confronted. Because eventually, if they take root and begin to bear fruit in their lives, it will bring destruction because that's all sin ever brings in your life is destruction. Second question, men, is your desire for change in them really aiming to make them more like Jesus or just make them more like you? Now, I, I know I'm preaching right now. I know this is landing with some of you. Right? In other words, is your desire for change in them just masking tape to cover over your selfish whims and wants that you want to receive from the relationship? We could press on that for a long time, but we ain't got time to do that this morning. Third, have you weighed, here's how you know the difference between those two things. Have you weighed this out with others or only in your own self-justifying heart and mind? Right? Are there people in your life that are close enough to you that you trust? Who've walked through life with you that you've opened your marital issues to and said, walk with me in these things. Challenge me in these areas. That you can weigh this out with them. Because if you weigh it out in the privacy of your own heart and the privacy of your own mind, you know what nine times out of ten your heart and mind are going to tell you? You're right. She's wrong. Keep driving. And some of you men, listen, most, you men in particular, women, you're much better about opening your life and hearts up to other people. But some of you men need other men in your life. You're going to be like, brother, you are wrong. You are out of bounds. Fourth, fourth, is this behavior a one-off occurrence or is it a repeated pattern in their lives? Sometimes there is a one-off occasion or occurrence that takes place that needs to be covered. But when it begins, to see, you begin to see it a second time and a third time, it's like I've got to lean into this and confront it. Is it a pattern that you see developing in their life? Do you see, is it, is, it, is it a moment of weakness in which they yield to temptation or is it an addiction that is building in their life that will eventually bring destruction? Fifth. Fifth. I think it's fifth. I'm not sure. I lost track of numbers. I always do that. Is the behavior something that's pulling them away from God or tarnishing their witness in the world? Right? Is it, is it diminishing their intimacy with God so that they no longer want to go before Him in prayer? They no longer want to be in His Word. They no longer want to be in Christian fellowship. Is it pulling them away from God? Is it tarnishing their witness in the eyes of other people? Right? So that the credibility, whenever they speak of the grace of God in their lives and its transforming power, people are like, that doesn't have a whole lot of power because I don't really see it at work in you. Whatever number this is, men, and this is what I'll leave you with, men, are you aiming for Christ-honoring change in your wife through traditional means or through biblical ones? Let me tell you what I mean by that. Traditional means, oftentimes in traditional cultures, the way men related to their spouses was through dictation. The way the Bible says you relate to your spouse and lovingly is through death. It's... And we're going to explore that much more in a couple of weeks, but it's not through dictation. Some of us are trying to lean into change in our wives by saying, you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this. You know what the scriptures say in Ephesians chapter 5? That the way you'll bring about Christ-honoring change in your wife, the kind that you desire to see as you see her grow into Christ-likeness and fullness, is whenever you begin to lay your life down on her sake, for her, on her behalf. You begin to say no to things, to say yes to her, right? You begin to say no at times to the third trip of the month or the 
fifth night out that week with all of your guy friends or going this place after work or with these people on the weekend. You begin to lay that down for the sake of your wife that you might serve her and meet her needs. You're saying no to yourself to say yes to her. You're not dictating the things from, to her from on high about all the things she's got to change, but you are dying. That's how the scriptures say that you're to aim for this kind of change in the life of your spouse as you pursue her sanctification. On the flip side, ladies, right, you're not a silent partner in this. Right? I find it interesting that the scriptures say that, that and we're going to explore this more in a couple of weeks, but the scriptures say that he is to relate to you as Christ relates to the church. He's to love you like Christ has loved the church. It uses those descriptive comparative terms as and like. It doesn't use is. He is not Christ. He is not Jesus. You know that, right? It's not not a revelation to you, right? But he is not your Lord. You have one of those whom you are to unconditionally submit yourself to and obey, right? But you are, so you are not a silent participant in all of this. Let me give you several things here, I think, that come out of this analogy that Paul draws in Ephesians 5, but also something that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. And the first one is this. Are you petitioning him to change or demanding that he change? Are you petitioning him that he change? Are you demanding that he change? Listen, I'm going to give you an analogy here, and you can't, again, analogies can only press be pressed so far. You know what I'm saying? Right, But listen, in the relationship that Jesus shares with the church, there are times in which we in the church, listen, our elders have done this several times over the course of the last couple of weeks. All of a sudden, somebody gets a diagnosis right, of, of, of a, a terminal illness. We were in a lady's home this last week in Mesquite praying for her that God would change, that God would, would do something different than what he's doing right now, that he would bring healing and life that he would restore her health give her an opportunity for witness right now whenever we come before God in prayer and we're petitioning God on the behalf of others interceding with God on behalf of others we're asking him change what you're doing right we never come before God and say God change who you are that is that is not that's not what we do whenever we come before Jesus and say would you change who you are but sometimes we come before him and say God this is this is what you're doing in my life would you change what you're doing Jesus, in fact, Jesus even says, or the scriptures say, listen, you have not because you ask not. Oftentimes, we lack blessings in our lives because we're not asking God to bless us and change the way that he's working in our lives and doing things. And listen, ladies, some of you need to lean in, not as a silent partner, but as a vocal one at times to say, can we talk about this? Listen, this is not going well. This is not how we envisioned it. Can we, can we alter this? Can we change this? You need to lean into that conversation. Second of all, when you do lean into that conversation, are you leaning in not only as a wife, but as a sister? Because you realize before you were ever his wife, if you're in Christ, you were his sister. Now, I know that sounds a little sketchy. We're not that kind of church, Right? But what we're saying is this, is that spiritually and biblically, before you were ever his wife, you were his sister in Christ, right? And whenever you see him caught in sin, whenever you see character flaws in him, whenever you see his conduct failing consistently, you see patterns of behavior that aren't changing in his life, and you begin to lean into that conversation, you need to recognize you're not only leaning in as a wife who's in covenant partnership with him, but as a sister, so that you take text like Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That you're leaning in gently, saying, Baby, I want you to flourish. I want you to grow. I want you to be the kind of man that God desires you to be for our children and for me as your wife. That's what I want, but this is what I see. I begin to see these things and they're concerning to me and I believe that there is error here that needs to be corrected. There needs to be a course correction. There needs to be an adjustment. And you lean into that conversation. 
Not by demanding, but by petitioning. Can we talk about these things? Right? Not by, uh, not by merely saying, right, you need to change this. We're through. We're done. But leaning in and gently saying, baby, I, I don't just want this for myself. I want this for you. I want this for you. And who better to lean in with a spirit of gentleness than the Christian who is closest to your husband. And by God's grace, I hope that's you. Third, I don't have as many for you ladies. I was kind of beating up on the men a little bit. Third, and lastly, are you speaking compassionately and redemptively? Are you speaking compassionately and redemptively? In 1 Peter chapter 3, in verses 1 to 4, Peter says this, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let the adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious now peter does not say listen you can never speak what he says if possible they may be one without a word sometimes words are necessary but even whenever you do speak you're speaking compassionately and you're speaking redemptively because you want to see him change to be a clear reflection of jesus you want him to see him change to be a clearer imitator of god and so what that means is this you're coming to him with respect not nagging Listen, let me, let, me just, let me just ask, can take a poll real quick. You don't have to raise your hand. But ladies, how many of you have gotten real deep heart level change in your husbands because you nagged him for it? You might have gotten compliance in the moment externally, but you did not get heart level change that lasted. You know how I know that? Because, hmm, Right? Because you were nagging again two months later. <laughs> it was compliance in the moment, but it wasn't heart level change. Also, what, based on what Peter says here, listen, you don't seduce him into change with your external appearance. Right? Or by withholding intimacy. Right? That's not what you do. You don't say, listen, if you don't clean it up, right? This, mm, it's going away. <laughs> That's not how it works says let your conduct be pure let it be respectful right listen there is a connection between what Paul says to husbands when he says love by laying your life down and serving your wife and what Peter says says listen you aim for change in your husbands to win him not by right blinging out your body Right? And not by nagging him with your mouth, but you win him by pure and respectful conduct as you serve him. You're serving him. He's aiming to serve you. Biblically, that's what it looks like in the context of a marriage as both of you are pursuing mutual sanctification. And do you know why that is, church? And I'm about to be done, I promise. But do you know why that is? Here's the reason. Here's the reason. Because to be loved sacrificially and humbly is the most powerful motive and incentive to become more lovable. Do you know that? To be loved sacrificially where husbands are laying their lives down for their wives and dying to themselves, saying no to other things, to say yes to her over and over and over again and wives are putting to death the natural tendency to want to manipulate her husband through nagging with her mouth or seducing with her body. You're putting those things to death to respectfully and in a pure way serve the needs of your husband as both are doing that. It is the pursuit of your mutual sanctification because what you're doing is reflecting the way in which God has done it in the gospel. Because you know what the greatest incentive to you becoming more lovable is? 
is you being loved in a sacrificial, humble, and unconditional way. And it's exactly how God has laid himself down for us in the person of Christ. Do you want change in your marriage? If you do, church, listen. Reject the cultural notions and norms, even the traditional means of accomplishing it. Men become men who would love and lead by dying. And ladies, take steps to become women of great faith who would continue to press in through their pure and respectable conduct. That's the mission of marriage. You're not looking for a soulmate. If you're single, you're not. Please, do not look for a soulmate who is com- and define that by someone who's compatible with you and doesn't require any change. Embrace the biblical view of marriage and see what God would do. Would you pray with me? Father, the day, we are grateful for the clarity of your word, how it speaks, how it convicts, how it calls forth change in our lives. And Father, I ask, I ask for the marriages in this church and the marriages in this community that, they, that we would embrace this idea of mutual sanctification and that men would grow to be clear representations and imitators of God and that women would grow to be clear representations and imitators of God. And they would do it in biblical means and in ways. If there are those in this room this morning who haven't just struggling, trying to work some of this out into the complexities of their relationship, into the complexities of their lives. Father, I pray that you'd lead them to take a step to a local church, if it's this one or another one, where they can surround themselves with other men and women who are wanting to embrace the biblical call to mutual sanctification in the context of their marriage and begin to work it out in grace and truth, surrounded by brothers and sisters who will love them and support them and encourage them in the journey. Father, I pray for our single brothers and sisters in the room this morning as well. Father, would you begin to deconstruct the destructive mentality that perhaps many are operating with as they move toward marriage of thinking, if I can just find the right person who doesn't, who gives much to me but requires nothing from me. Father, I pray that you would shatter that expectation and begin to rebuild a biblical one. And if they're struggling to work it out, Father, I pray they would seek community in this church or another one where people can walk alongside of them and help build their expectations biblically and appropriately. Father, may your word bring healing. And may your spirit apply it to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.